Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 201 of the Chills of Wool podcast. Such a pleasure today to be joined by Erica Berry. Erica Berry's nonfiction debut, Wolfish, Wolf, Self, and the Stories We Tell About Fear, was published in February 2023 by Flatiron Macmillan in the U.S. and Canada and Canongate in the U.K. and Commonwealth in March of this year. Her essays and journalism appear in Outside, Catapult, Wired, and many, many other publications. Winner of the Steinberg Essay Prize, she has received grants and fellowships from the Ucross Foundation, Minnesota State Arts Board, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, the Institute for Journalism and Natural Resources, and Tin House. She teaches workshops for teenagers and adults through the Attic Institute, Literary Arts, the Sitka, the Sitka Center for Art and Ecology, the New York Times Student Journeys, and Oxford Academia. She was a 2019-2020 National Writers Series Writer-in-Residence and Teaching Fellow at Front Street Writers in Traverse City, Michigan. She graduated from Bowdoin, Bowdoin, Bowdoin. Bowdoin I should know that, wow, nope. college, thank you, in 2014 and received her MFA from the University of Minnesota as a College of Liberal Arts Fellow in 2018. She now lives in her hometown of Portland, Oregon, where she is a writer in the schools and an Associate Fellow at the Attic Institute of Arts and Letters. I had the pleasure to meet you a while back at Talia Kaluri's reading in the Bay, or conversation with you about your book, but it's awesome to see you again. How are you this afternoon? Thanks so much for having me here, and I'm here with the t-shirt that you, you know, handed over in yes. from the crowd, which was, it's so exciting when you get swag at readings. I wasn't right? prepared for that, so <laughs> thank you, both for the swag and for having me back. Well, thanks to you for, for coming, and thanks to you for, for rocking. I really appreciate it. The book is very personal in some ways, so we do get to know some of your childhood, but I just love to know really specifically about like the reading and the writing. You know, was it a very, was it a word-rich environment? Was it a, were there magazines and books all over the place? Were you the library kid all the time? What was kind of your early relationship with reading and writing? Yeah, I think I was um, very early. I realized that, you know, like many young readers, I could escape through books and they became this portal to this other world. Um, Rebecca Solnit has a great line about realizing that books were these like wormholes to other worlds. And then mm. she wanted to write books to create wormholes for other people. And I think yeah. I always did have that sense that um, writing imaginative stories as a child was like a deeply fun way for as someone who is self-conscious and kind of worried. I mean, this is a book about fear and anxiety. And many of the people who know me say, well, you don't seem very worried. You seem like you're very mm -hmm. joyful. And I think both of those things are, are true. But as a kid, I did have a lot of subliminal anxieties and I, you know, put those away into sort of compartmentalizing and reading all the time. Um, yeah. And I loved reading fiction. I mean, I think stories, this is a book that's nonfiction, but it's very much about, you know, fairy tales and the stories we tell. And those were the stories that really um, captured me as a young person. And I mm -hmm. considered myself a poet, I think, above anything else um, okay. as a teenager and had wonderful mentors. So I felt like, you know, that attention to language, I became sort of fixated on kind of these chewy sentences or how, how words mm -hmm. were put together. Um, as well as the stories that they were saying. So what what were some of those stories or those poems or those texts or those writers who really thrilled you, inspired you? You know, there's one book that is just like an, a YA imaginative book, uh, Inkheart by Cornelia Funk, that's about okay. characters coming to life through a book. It's mm -hmm. like an, in many ways, it's a very meta book about what reading mm -hmm. is. But I feel like that was, I actually wrote to Cornelia Funk, like wrote her this letter. Mm -hmm. And I think that was you know, a maybe early an example of like the desire not just to fall into the world of the book, but the world of the author and like mm -hmm. to understand mm -hmm. where how her brain had created this other world. Um, and 
so yeah, I mean, as I got older, like I was remember thinking, okay, I'm I'm writing all this poetry. I should get really into Sylvia Plath because like mm -hmm. I'm this young white woman writing poetry. And then I actually just became more fixated on her journals and just the way mm. she described these like granular experiences of being a young woman. And mm. I think now I can look at some of those and think like that was the sort of early parts of me that are interested in, you know, describing social scenes or cultural moments or, mm. you know, my own life um, as a way to make sense of the world around me, sort of pivoting back and forth. Like I, I was pouring over journals and diaries of writers at that time too. Um, Oh man, I, I love the idea of the, I love the letters, you know, like the collected letters of, you know, mm -hmm. William Faulkner and so-and-so like that's such a lost art, I think. Right. I totally agree. Yeah. And you know, there's that intimacy where I just read someone saying, I don't remember who it was. Like she never, the problem with writing in a journal is that she's envisioning a reader and who is that reader, you know, and that creates a false voice. And I think that is when you're writing letters, you know who you're writing to. So there's an intimacy, but it's also like directed. It's a little bit, it's it, in a way it can be less performative sometimes than journal writing. I find for me, you know, like correspondence yeah, yeah, yeah. is actually about connection with someone. Whereas journaling is like, I don't know. I'm I'm not dumping on journaling. I think journaling is great and I love reading journals, but I do agree that, yeah, that, that correspondence is so special. Um, and I think like as someone who loved the natural world, I loved reading texts that were about the natural world, but I also was bored by them if there weren't humans in there. And I cared mm -hmm. about the human side of that, um, yeah. you know? And so I think, yeah, want, uh, like wanting to read beautiful descriptions of the natural world only went so far for me. So some sure. of those books were very helpful, but um, I was also like pivoting back to the juicy uh, human yeah. interactions. <laughs> well, uh, sorry. I mean, dumping on journaling. Sorry, this interview is over. Sorry. <laughs> I'm a journaler. I say this as a self-professed <laughs> journaler. <laughs> Just kidding. That, that is, I don't know, ironic or counterintuitive though. Like that, that's such a cool idea that you have that like, yeah, there it does seem like journaling can be more performative when you would think it would be the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. In writing to someone else, you'd think there'd be more performance, but there is that intimacy there, yeah. I think part of it for me is, uh, I mean, I have kept journals most of my life, and interestingly enough, it's like the hard, the periods that have felt hardest, maybe where I'm feeling sad or there's a big adjustment period. My first year of college, I was adjusting to a lot, and I write about some of that in the book, um, and I didn't journal at all. And part of that was that I didn't want to put into words how I was feeling because I didn't trust those feelings. And I felt like once I say them, it's crystallized. And, you know, that speaks to, I think, the fears sometimes of writing where it's like you have how do you, whenever you're pinning down the world, it becomes hard. But, you know, when I was writing this book, I was trying to piece together. And anytime I write about a moment in my life, I'm like, how was I feeling at that time? And you can mm -hmm. find it through, you know, text messages and emails. And like, mm -hmm. there's other things, even though I was afraid of sort of like narrating my life in my mm -hmm. journal. Oh, man. Yeah, just in general, right? Like as a writer, this whole idea of like, oh, my God, I wrote the worst 150 words ever. Like, is someone going to see this? You know what I mean? I know it's just a first draft, but I can't, I can't solidify it. I can't print it out. Someone might find it. They might go through my drawer. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's that squishy feeling of I've created this monster and I don't want it to live. And also the thought that it will never see the light of day is terrible too, right? Both of uh, those things yes. are true. Yes. yes. Um, the, uh, so you talked about, Cor Cor is it Cornelius, the last name of the writer? Uh, Cornelia Funky. I don't Sorry, know exactly how to, yeah. yeah. With an E at the end, right, right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So as you got into high school and college then, like what what were you reading? Do you did you continue on the poetry path? Was it more mm -hmm. some of the nonfiction naturey? Like you wrote a lot about really growing up in Portland, but also having like a home away from home and it wasn't just it's not just lip service, you really did have that close connection, like what one family in Montana, one mm -hmm. Yeah, my grandparents both Oregon. lived on yeah farms, so mm -hmm. I did. We're spending a lot of time there, and you know, I remember going out to Montana or to my grandfather's sheep farm in Oregon, and I would just bring like big stacks of mystery books, like mm -hmm. you know Nancy Drew's when I was young, but these right. other books, and I think, um, yeah, it, it's interesting because I uh, 
I think part of my worrying was always trying to read books about problems. Like I, I would take like the idiot's guide to, mm. I don't know, shipwrecks or something on a ski trip. I have like this vague mm. memory of like sitting in a cabin, not wanting to go outside, just wanting to like read as a form of survival mm. um, and trying to prepare myself for bad things happening. Um, mm. And so like reading mystery books was like, well, if I ever get kidnapped in the back of the car, like I'm going to know what to do. Cause like, here's what needs to happen. And so, you know, I think re uh, reading was always a form of trying to like, solve some puzzle like I, as a sort of catastrophizer it was a way of preparation but also you're like trying on these different selves and mm -hmm. i think in college i started i was studying environmental studies and english and you know there was a degree of like well poetry is not I had a wonderful creative writing instructor in high school who told me, I said, all I want to do is write poetry and do creative writing. And like, that's all I want to do. And he was like, you should absolutely do that, but please study something else. And mm -hmm. you'll keep doing that, but you'll have another expertise. Sure. And I chafed against that, but I think it was really wonderful to like have this grounding suddenly and sort of like I had to take environmental politics classes and environmental mm -hmm. science classes. Mm -hmm. And then I was still going back to the language, but I started, you know, I was took an environmental writing class and was hearing about the writing of Terry Tempest Williams and uh, Elizabeth Colbert and John McPhee and Rachel Carson and started realizing that like things I loved about words and language and sort of drama, uh, they were being played out in nonfiction in ways that I don't think I had mm -hmm. thought. I thought nonfiction was dry. I thought it was boring. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. I began to realize that like it it wasn't any of those things and it was making me cry. I remember like yeah. sitting in the student union, like crying, reading this book and feeling moved in a way that I was the opposite of, you know, Yeah. I, I was feeling the things I felt about poetry, but I was reading about the real world. And of course, poetry is about the real world too. So it's, I, I think, you know, these are false binaries to some degree, but um, mm. it made me realize that, you know, nonfiction could be a way of looking at the world closely, but I was understanding myself in the process. And similarly, I've always felt that like writing about the self, like Sylvia Plath writing in her journals about being 17 years old mm -hmm. is also a way of me understanding the world that she was in, right? I'm not just looking at it for her inner yeah. self. I'm looking at like thinking about my grandmother growing up at that time or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Starting to understand that that sort of like oscillating between looking outward and looking inward was really compelling to me. It become like an anthropological study, right? Like I think so. Yeah. yeah. In some way. And like, you know, mm -hmm. there's probably an argument that like it's this, there is that argument that, that this is such a navel gazy way of moving through the world. But I, I really feel strongly, um, you know, after working as a journalist, and I think that's it's it's wonderful to write journalism that's rooted in facts. And it's also, I think, you know, a myth that these things are ever objective. Like we all mm -hmm. have a standpoint and a, a, I started realizing that, say, if I'm doing environmental j reporting on something, this is informed by me being a white woman who's grown up on a farm, who has relatives who are taxidermists and ranchers mm -hmm. and also environmentalists. And like, right. those are all informing how I'm doing interviews, how I'm ex how I'm sort of like code switching. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know, I just think um, it became interesting to make those things visible on the page for me. And you're talking about like reading like Nancy Drew or something like that as like a how-to did, I mean, did you obsess over like, you know, ways that you could get hurt, ways you could get injured? I, I just, I'm reminded of like David Foster Wallace. He talked about, he knew every single reported shark attack, you know, in the last 40 years, you know, and where it happened and who, like, was that something you obsessed, kind of obsessed about? And I, I guess it's kind of a, can, my next question too is just about, you talked about some really tragic things that happened in your mom's life, mm -hmm. almost like maybe even passing on traumas or passing mm -hmm. on grief. And mm -hmm. your parents come across as just incredible, beautiful people. I wonder kind of about, I guess, I, yeah, I guess about fear as a kid and how you feel, yeah. how I know as a parent, you do as much as you possibly can to take away every single fear, but it's not possible. Did, I wonder how your parents kind of affected your career, your mm -hmm. writing, you know, and influenced you in that mm -hmm. way. And also how kind of fear worked in as a kid. Yeah. Thanks for that question. And mom and dad, if you're listening, great shout out for your yes. parenting. They've gone through a lot and been supportive as I have uh, <laughs> written about them. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I I think um you know my my mom had multiple people in her life who died when they were teenagers or young um young 20s and so I did grow up with this sense that death was a thing that could take you not when you were old but when you were a young person and so I did have a sense of sort of hyper surveillance around that possibility um and I wanted so badly to keep the loved ones near me 
safe because I could understand the ways that um, a family could f fall apart um, or be fractured. It wasn't abstract to you, right? I mean, it, was it wasn't abstract. And I think, you know, I've, I did not have that grief in my immediate family, but it is, I, I, you know, I write about it as these shadows, like the past has these presences. We inherit the losses, even when they're not talked about. Many of us have, there's silences around losses that are absolutely intergenerational. Um, and, you know, not talking about it creates its own sort of vortex around mm. a thing. And I don't at all blame my parents for not like metabolizing some of the grief that was a part of the years right before I was born, but I did have a sense of sort of being born into a world that was defined by certain losses. And so I think I felt very safe and I was, you know, very lucky and privileged in both the, the place I was growing up and in the way my parents were. And they, re I remember September 11th, I re mentioned in the book, I think like I didn't watch the footage of the twin, I was a fourth grader at the time mm -hmm. and didn't watch, we just didn't really have the TV on. It just wasn't my parents, that wasn't how they got the news and we had bad service. We were living up in the hills and the trees. We just couldn't get it. You know, mm -hmm. it was like a number of reasons, but only later was I sort of like, oh, I was sh sheltered in certain ways. They never really meant to shelter me. It just happened that way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of the whiplash of going out into the world on my own, you know, that happened suddenly. I was outside of this house where I just, we were, I was just busy. I was playful. I was, you know, playing in the yard. I was reading books. Like it wasn't, sometimes you're not trying to be sheltered. You're just, I was living a life lucky enough and privileged mm. enough to be able to be insulated because I was just busy with other yeah. things. And then suddenly I was having to choose on my own what to consume. And, you know, there's, there's very clear statistics around like reading about bad things happening. We've, we begin to see the world mean world syndrome, I believe is the mm -hmm. technical term someone gave. And I started to have a little bit of that and was, was struggling to sort of dose or titrate. I'm thinking of what are you doing when you're figuring out the, the right concoction in a science mm -hmm. class, like what was the right amount of sort of surveillance and fear that I should have mm -hmm. because I felt like I trusted my family members to just take care of me earlier. Yeah. You didn't live, uh, shelter's not the word, but you didn't live uh, a scared life. You were, you know, you did these camps, you were the counselor and you would go rock climbing and all that. Like, I'm someone, like I was, my, uh, <laughs> I was telling you before we were recording, my son's first soccer game scored a few goals that he was like, so cool to see, so cool to see. He was so proud of himself. But like, I asked him, I played one year of soccer because I was like scared of the ball or whatever, right? And I was like, what was it like, you know? Mm -hmm. so, you know, so cool to see. It's one game, but so cool to see mm -hmm. that he's not, he doesn't have that fear, right? Yeah. And so, like, you know, I'm the type, like, I'll see a roller coaster, one of those swinging roller coaster things mm -hmm. off the freeway or whatever, and I'm just like, I can't even look at it. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm not going to go on these scary rides. Like, did you, in some ways, kind of like the, the antidote, like, I'm going to go out and, like, you know, do it, shake, shake the world, go out and do it, and, you know, just like, yeah. be my fears, confront my fears in that way? I, so I just was reading a Rachel Cusk memoir about, um, a trip she took to Italy. I'd never seen it before. I saw it sitting around and like, ah, summertime, I'll pretend I'm going to Italy. I'll read this short Rachel Cusk yeah. book about a Italy trip. And she has this mention of her daughter where she says she realizes that her daughter hated fear so much that she would just fling herself at it because she wanted mm -hmm. to pass through it. Um, you know, I'm thinking about it like a, a kidney stone or something, right? Like you see it, it's unpleasant. It's like, there's not, you just want to live through it. Mm -hmm. Um, I say this as someone who hasn't had kidney stones, but someone close to me does right now. Um, and so maybe this is a bad metaphor, but I do think um, I was uncomfortable with fear. And so I wanted to do, I wanted to get past it by doing mm -hmm. it. Um, mm -hmm. And that meant that I was living in more, as Rachel, she, she writes, she says, this means that my daughter was living with more terror, not less terror in the world, mm -hmm. even though she was the one jumping off of high rocks. Um, and recently I just had this, I was on a bike packing trip last week and there was a bridge people were jumping off of. And I saw it and was like, I don't want to jump off this bridge. I'm scared. And I had this voice that was like, you have to jump off the bridge. You can't be afraid. Just mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I did it. And then I wasn't scared of it anymore. And that felt important to like check that box. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do think, 
you know, I, I definitely had that in terms of like, oh, I'll take an Amtrak train by myself across the country without mm-hmm. a sleeper car, because to be afraid of that is to live a small life. And I don't want to live a small life. I want mm-hmm. to just like keep flinging myself with this sort of like open eyed mm-hmm. fervor and curiosity. Um, and sometimes that bit me a little bit, but yeah. Also, I guess last question before we get to the books, you talk about living this big life. Is that, was there, was that encouraged by or inspired by like, you know, the Hemingways, like, you know, the ride, this idea of the rider, the rider, Jack Kerouac goes out and he sees the whole world. I forget the name of the eat, pray, love, sleep, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, you know what I mean? Gilbert, like, yeah. Is, is there something about being a, a rider too that you're just like, I got to go explore the world. It's just, it's like a must. I think there is an imperative in that when I'm traveling, I feel, you know, as with many of us, sort of like more culturally, um, the my prescription eyewear, the metaphorical like lens is just sharper, right? I'm looking around mm-hmm. me more. Um, and I don't even mean traveling the world, but like, you know, being outside or traveling mm-hmm. or moving around, um, I'm trying to then narrate it in my head and always to go take stories to tell other people. That was always important was like, mm. I, I want to go to this place to be able to talk about it, mm. not in a showy offy way, but just like in a processy way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think, you know, I loved those stories of, I loved Kerouac as a teenager. And I remember thinking like, this is embarrassing because a woman, a female teacher that I'd had had told me like, you'll enjoy Kerouac now because it's going to be hard for you in 10 years. And I didn't get Mm -hmm. what she meant because I was just so full of that same, Mm -hmm. like, let's just go road trip across things. And I think it's true that later, you know, I began to realize like some of the stories there weren't the same stories about women going off and doing these crazy things mm-hmm. as there were men. And I wanted to like try to live those stories. If I wasn't reading them, I would live them, you know? Um, and so, uh, yeah, I was, I definitely, you know, was writing this book kind of grappling with some of the adventure narratives that I'd really um, mm-hmm. been compelled by. And also there was kind of like a void of certain things where, mm-hmm. you know, Chris McCandless, the Jack, um, John Krakauer going off into the woods. I kind of envied that and also resented that at the same time. Resented that, that he is a male didn't have that double standard on him. Is that part of it? Yeah, I think I, I mean, of course he died, you know? So, yeah, but I think I had an experience in college where I thought I'm going to apply for this grant and I'm going to go travel around the world. And I had this question I was going to talk to people about. It's it's Mm. too embarrassing to go into the details, but I, one of the countries I was going to go to was Bhutan and Mm. I was talking to an advisor about it. And he was kind of like, you're just not going to be able to go to Bhutan and travel, do this mountain climbing as a woman doing these interviews. It's just not going to be safe. And the committee is going to know that, and they're not going to give it to you and just don't even apply Mm. was sort of the implication. Um, And I had never thought that that was going to be true. Um, It had not occurred to me that it Mm. would be dangerous for me and that that danger would mean that my world would be smaller and my writing would be smaller. Mm. And I wanted my writing to be big and I wanted my reporting and exploring to be big. Um, And so, yeah, I guess that sort of friction and that sense of being constrained, I, Mm. I didn't turn away from that. I decided to write towards that in some sense. It, it's so hard. I mean, in the best possible way, it's so hard to categorize your book. Wolfish is part history, part biology, part psychology, part memoir. Mm-hmm. Thinking of like, uh, I, I'm, I I talk about the anyone I can. Gene Guerrero's Crux. Mm, I haven't read uh, that. I'm writing it down. Oh, man. So good. Just so many. Again, you know, history and religion and mythology and personal. Talked about Chris McCandless. I, I taught Into the Wild for a few years. And, you know, mm-hmm. there are always a few students who are just like, what a kind of stupid Mm-hmm. And there's always some who are inspired and there's always some in between, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of that in your book and with travels. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many comparisons, but it's, it's definitely mm-hmm. one of one of one. Mm-hmm. Did you, were there particular books or t- writers, whether they write in the same, you know, genre or vein as you like really more contemporary who really inspired you or mm-hmm. you, know, you felt like kind of like this was like an, an honor of them or that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I, remember the first time that I started reading writers that were doing this more kaleidoscopic approach, what, mm-hmm. which I would call, you know, like the idea that I have the wolf at the center of something, but you're looking at it through these different angles. And I'm thinking about, you know, the first time I read Maggie Nelson or Claudia Rankine and mm-hmm. 
understood away this sort of interdisciplinary omnivorousness, which I think mm. it makes sense that I started learning about these in college because doing a liberal arts degree, I was taking classes in different genres. So what I was learning in my sociology class, and then I would walk over to my environmental yeah, yeah. science class and like, there's this slippage that happens. And I think it was sort of, it struck me like, oh, at lunch, I'm now going and talking to my best friend about these things. But then like, I have to go write a paper and pretend like I began trying to write papers that would like bring in different subjects. And sometimes they're like, you just can't do that. Like, this is mm. the point. But it was when I learned there was this kind of nonfiction where you could like honor the connections that my mind was making off the page. Mm -hmm. um, and I think of actually a visual artist, Joseph Cornell, who does these shadow boxes where he's like all these found materials. Um, and I think I started thinking about like collage as a form that was intriguing, both as yeah. a way to like point to archival materials, which were really mm -hmm. fascinating to me, but also to, you know, taking a, a watch out of its frame and putting mm -hmm. it next to like a wine glass looks really different, you know, and you start thinking about the clock in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I began to realize like taking certain stories or lines of thought out of their sort of context and putting them in another one, you're going to maybe like think about it in a different way. And I think mm -hmm. Joni Tevis was another writer, um, J-O-N-I, who was really inspiring. And she was writing in sort of these deep like my i think of like a macro lens on the natural world but then also a macro lens on her own life in ways mm. that were really inspiring to me that you could again kind of oscillate between different forms of intimacy i guess both yeah. with the world and with the self yeah definitely most of the stories the travels take place 2010 and, and beyond but i wonder like where you know because it is such a, like a hybrid like you're talking about mm -hmm. There's you're a researcher, you're a historian, you're a scientist, or or, or citing scientific studies. Mm -hmm. You know, you're I mean, you're out, you are a scientist. You're out in the field in Oregon, in Britain. Um, you know, a psychologist, like you know, with the mm -hmm. with the person on the couch being yourself at times. You know, <laughs> I guess when did you really realize like this is a book? It's not a series of ten articles about you know disparate subjects. It's this is a book. Some of the mm -hmm. seeds for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, the first version of this was an environmental studies thesis as an undergraduate, and that one was just about wolves repopulating the American West. And I was mm. also writing about my family, which sort of spread across these like urban, urban in quotation marks, urban rural lines, divides mm. that we talk about in America. You know, there's this sort of like mythological oh, yeah. us, them. And my own family, I would say, sort of like populates that spectrum. And so I was always interested in that. But I, I, I wrote this whole book about thinking about wolves and the place they occupied sort of on the ground and in our psyche. And that one wasn't about fear at all. Um, I don't think I mentioned the word fear in my mm. first 200 page version of this book I wrote. Wow. And then I went to graduate school and it was around the time I'd just gotten to my MFA and I was thinking I was going to write about wolves, but you know, it felt a little bit dead in the water. Like I was like, I've spent all this time, I've done all this research. I'm still really passionate about the subject, but it felt distant. You know, it was, I couldn't, I wasn't feeling it. It was like, mm. it was in my head, but it wasn't in my heart. Mm. Um, and then I had an experience that I write about, but one in particular where I was leaving a brewery and a man kind of ran up behind me and put his arms around me who I didn't know it was dark at night. And it was so unsettling to me that this thing that I'd always been told that could happen, which is you're walking down the street at night and a stranger grabs you from behind, um, that that had actually happened to me and another stranger had had to intervene. And, you know, I was physically fine. But I also felt like I had been physically rewired in a way. I was not moving through the world in the same way. I became afraid of like camping and hiking by myself and all these things that I'd previously done to feel like free. And I for so long was like, well, that's separate from the wolves, you know, like here's the project I'm writing about. And then I'm like dealing with all this anxiety. And it wasn't until I think I was like, I don't know, maybe I was reading about I didn't mention Little Red Riding Hood probably in my first mm -hmm. thesis. And then it became like, oh, actually, like people who are mad about the wolf are mad about this this figure that's symbolic and storytelling. Mm -hmm. And actually that's this sort of Little Red Riding Hood story. And that story implicates not just the wolf, but also a certain version of this girl, this woman who's attacked. Like I became mm -hmm it became clear that I was still grappling with symbolic wolves in my life. And actually mm -hmm. I started thinking maybe there's a book that could acknowledge both the real wolf who's on the ground, but also that real wolf is really uh, affected by the ways we sort of still think about it in this. And we, I, you know, 
many people still think about this kind of fairy tale, big bad wolf. Oh, and yeah. um, that became a more personal reckoning with fear in this sort of second iteration during my MFA, um, you know, eight years yeah. after I'd started it. I appreciate that. The book starts off with uh, almost almost like it's like crime reporting. It starts off with the female body and that that is the wolf, right? Mm-hmm. Now, that was OR 107. That was, uh, yeah, even I have to remember now. That yeah. was OR 106. It was 106, was, okay. Yep. All right. And, you know, like you talked about, you know, the you you weave in so many things in the book. You talked about that the, the man who, you know, accosted you outside the restaurant you know, legitimate scares, scares that are very, that are, gen, you know, gender-based, that are, that women have to deal with, unfortunately, way too often because of Little Red Riding Hood. And you, you go back in the history of, like, the original story. Well, the original one that was written down, mm-hmm. you know, which was probably not the original. Mm-hmm. And just ideas of a lot of it is about the whole, like, wow, why was she dressed that way? Why did she, mm-hmm. why did she go to him? Why was she so naive? you know, just, I mean, sexist on their, on their mm-hmm. fronts, but you also talk about there are, there's so many differing stories, some there where the, where she does have agency mm-hmm. somewhere there is like almost like, you know, like a revenge fantasy or mm-hmm. something, but it's just so, so well done how you intersperse these stories, history and myth with what happens to you with what's happening in the world. Crying Wolf, mm-hmm. which of course in the story, it is a boy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's often, right. It's oftentimes again, gendered. It's oftentimes mm-hmm. seen as the woman, you write so so well about that how it's just how that plays out in our in our world today and i, I was just amazed like man there are so many expressions that use wolf mm-hmm. there are so it's, many stories i wouldn't even think right once you start sort of like tuning oh, your gaze to it rabbit hole pardon the it's, pun or not really yes <laughs> the rabbit hole they're probably true for rabbits too but there are wolves you know? everywhere there are um, wolves everyone i know the italian expression in boca de lupo mm-hmm. Tell, uh, remind me please the french one that you use a lot yeah entre chien et loup which is this sort of idea of twilight and it's the time of day when you can't tell if something before you is a wolf or a dog uh-huh. and i sort of that became a way to think about more of what the wolf is, which is this thing that is both kind of familiar to us. Um, it's dog-like. The dog is man's best friend, right? And yeah. it's not. So it, there's this sort of like uncanny valley that the animal occupies, I think, where mm. we expect legibility. But we also, it's a, it's a wild animal. You know, if you see a wolf, you don't know. There's a, that moment of eye contact that Barry Lopez refers to as the sort of like there's a German word that I'll mispronounce, but the the dance of death is the way it translated mm-hmm. where the predator and prey are kind of making eye contact. But I was interested in like, well, who's the predator and who's the prey, you know, technically in that situation. And in general, when we see something that we perceive as threat, that does not mean it's actually a threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started looking up wolf expressions all around the world. And, you know, there are some that are like when the fox, when the wolf Gosh, what is it? Something about the wolf gets the grain. The w- wolf gets the blame. The fox gets the grain. Mm. You know, or if you talk about a wolf, you see its tail. Like all in, across the yeah, world, yeah, 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 there's yeah. these expressions that parents would like tell to try to teach about the world, about how to be brave, about how to stay mm-hmm. alive, that children would hear that have wolves in them. And that's just the wolf as a sort of teaching implement became really interesting. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um- yeah, now, now might be a good time if you would. I think we were saying like page six. Sure, yeah, I can read a paragraph, yeah. Yeah, just the idea of the wolf. You write about the lack of deaths and injuries and a lot of the unfortunates mm-hmm. because of extinctions in certain parts of the world. Mm-hmm. But this idea that it, the perception is not is not the reality. So yeah, somewhere mm-hmm. around, you know, despite con- evidence. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So despite this evidence to the contrary, the wolf's legacy as a symbol of danger, the beast to vanquish, the human foe, has persisted as the dominant Euro-American narrative. Quote, the wolf is the only animal with a criminal reputation and record that has lasted for centuries and resulted in so many legal acts putting a price on its head, writes human animal scholar Gary Marvin in Wolf. In 2021, the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research published Wolf Attacks on Humans, a comprehensive report of what is known about alleged attacks worldwide. The report is the continuation of a 2002 report where J.D. Linnell surveyed some 400 years of human history to conclude that attacks were unusual but episodic, with humans not part of their normal prey. Wolves, the report noted, are among the least dangerous species for their size and predatory potential. 
In their updated report, they summarize findings by writing that a very large proportion of wild wolf attacks appeared to come from rabid wolves, with a small number being defensive. The remainder, clustered primarily in historic Europe and contemporary South Asia, were predatory. That's in quotes. That's the technical term. Though this last category is arguably what contemporary North Americans visualize if they say they are afraid of wolves, the risk of death by wild wolf attack here is almost non-existent. Most recorded predatory attacks have been on children and isolated in specific windows of time and space in areas with almost no wild prey and poor vulnerable human communities, the 2021 report quotes. With rabies essentially eradicated in North America and Europe, the last 18 years have seen only 12 wolf attacks on humans with two fatalities. In a place where millions of people and close to 75,000 wolves share the land, widespread fear and persecution of the animal, especially on the grounds of threatening human life, are evidently misplaced. It is apparent that the risks associated with a wolf attack are above zero, but far too low to calculate, the researchers note. They urge the public to consider wolves in the same category as large predators, such as sharks, bears, crocodiles, and leopards. Worthy of caution, sure, but not of execution. Hmm. Thank you for reading that part, especially in the West Coast, especially in Oregon, definitely California. There, there's this idea that it was OR106, right, who was like the startling. Mm-hmm. Which, OR1. Which, or seven was the one that I read about. Is that yeah? Pardon, pardon me. Well, it's okay. You know, all... <laughs> well, no, I wanted to make sure I got the number right. You know, this idea of like there had not been because of the eradication, and you write so much mm-hmm. about how in so many indigenous groups the wolf was was as a companion. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes there's like the stereotype of like you know mother wolf, mm-hmm. and that's fine too. And you write about that, but it's also just like a companion, mm-hmm. and you know. If it's the dominant European American narrative, that's exactly mm-hmm. what it is. And we don't often take into account. You write about how in Japan, for example, it's very, mm-hmm. very recent where wolves were seen as predatory. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, and the idea that if you're, um, you know, in northern Japan where rice fields, uh, you know, deer are going to be a threat to that. So the wolf mm-hmm. is actually sort of the shepherd because the wolf yes. is scaring away the deer in some of these older, older stories. And you think only when we are competing with the wolf for livestock, for example, mm. like this sense that, you know, this is, it's going to be our meat or their meat. So there are competition that mm. creates this sense of other and fight and competition, which I would argue is like, you know, artificial that's, that's mandated by sort of a certain capitalist way of owning uh, other animals and owning the land. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you write about it. So, um, so eloquently, you know, the, I mean, indigenous groups, how do you how do you not see connections to indigenous groups being kicked off their land, mm-hmm. you know, forced into smaller lands, worse lands, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think them. one of the reasons that I felt like I wanted to write this book was because I began to see the ways that the animalization of people and mm-hmm. the sort of personification of wolves was actually very linked. You know, just recently in Germany, there were reports with immigrants and refugees being referred to as sort of these wolf packs. And we've seen that throughout Mm -hmm. time where people are referred to sort of as the other. And that goes all the way back to sort of early American history. There's descriptions of native peoples, indigenous peoples, black peoples that are referred to using the sort of animalized language. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I would argue that like, these are not separate issues. You know, it's not like, oh, the wolf is over here in some environmental sphere. And then we have Mm -hmm. this sort of like social justice sphere. Like that's the same language and that's the same sort of um, something referring to the Central Park Five as a wolf pack was bad, not only for, of course, these wrongfully accused boys, but also for wolves, because a wolf pack is not going to just attack a female jogger. They're probably going to run away from her. You know, like that's relying on a a metaphor that's false. And I became interested in the ways that like these false metaphors had sort of embedded themselves culturally, um, not just in the natural world. Well, now I got myself confused. So the one, the one who was followed, the one who had the Twitter account, that's 107. That's seven, just the seventh wolf. So that oh, was yeah, like yeah, yeah, a long yeah. time ago. Yeah, yeah, you're okay. right. It's 106 okay. and seven. It's confusing. Okay. But okay. Um, 106 died recently, and then seven was the seventh wolf in Oregon. So that's right. this wolf that left his family around the time I left mine, and I sort of yeah. follow his path. Right. So it's such a cool, um, you know, parallel story. 
And, you know, so this wolf is going, um, you know, Eastern Oregon was, was, was still like a huge uh, discovery or a huge, you know, surprise, but then into Western Oregon, even touched down into California, you know, it makes sense, but you really hammered the point home. It's okay. Like they don't have, they don't know they're in California, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. there's no, mm-hmm. um, you know, their territory is a big deal. You write about how, yes, we do not want to have the illegal hunting and such, but it's maybe more important, right, to keep the lands, mm-hmm. to keep, and, you know, to keep the territories. And mm-hmm. and so with that, you know, again, people really started to get involved and there's these Twitter mm-hmm. accounts and they're looking for love mm-hmm. for, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the wolves. And they're so happy when they see, um, you know, pictures and the family. But again, land and who owns it in territories. Mm-hmm. I'd known this, but I was so well educated by the book that Oregon, not for altruistic reasons, they mm-hmm. had, they were not a, a slave owning state. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Cool. Great. Mm-hmm. But they also made laws. Basically, if you're a black person, get out. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, a, I mean, an ethnic cleansing, uh, just, mm-hmm. a, you know, horrific, just racism. Mm-hmm. But maybe, maybe you don't learn about that all in history class, or maybe you do, mm-hmm. and you just learn about like, oh, they weren't a slave owning state. Cool. Mm-hmm. They were on the mm-hmm. right side of justice. Right. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how you felt like you were able to, did, do you feel like those connections really came to you? Because in reading the book, they seem so smooth. And it's like, yes, this, mm-hmm. every, you know, so many things are connected. Mm-hmm. Or, or did it take a while for you to kind of break out of your environmental science bubble? Yeah sociology bubble. Yeah, no, thank you for that question. I think when I heard that the first governmental meeting in the place that would become known as Oregon Mm -hmm. was uh, to figure out what to do with predators like wolves and cougars and mountain and bears, but it's now referred to as the wolf meetings, right? The wolf was the big bad one. And so the first law passed was a tax that was a bounty on those predators. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking like, okay, you have a group of people that come together because they're determined that we have to kill this wolf. And the wolves were problematic to the settlers. Like there was some, I don't think that was all just fairy tale Mm -hmm. visioning. And yet there was also an inflated sense of um, we have to exterminate this thing to make it like our civilization. Right. We're defining what is civilized, quote unquote. And so we Mm -hmm. have to kill this wolves. And then you look at, okay, well, what what do those people continue doing? Oh, they actually continue drawing lines and excluding, you know, and the exclusion of peoples came right alongside the exclusion of wolves. And I started thinking like, to consider these as different history classes or different issues um, neglects that these are like the same voters, potentially. These are the Mm -hmm. same people, right? And I think when we think about today, who's making decisions, you know, it's not like somebody puts on their hat and becomes one person and then goes to another part of their life and becomes someone else. Like we're Mm -hmm. the same people. And so I felt like reckoning with what it meant to be an early Oregonian meant reconciling with both the racism yeah. and the like predatory exclusionism. And so, yeah, I, I do think there's, there's just an interconnectedness that we don't always uh, let ourselves see. And so, you know, and as f- so far as this book, I wanted to teach people about something about wolves, but I also wanted to kind of model a form of associative thinking and maybe connection. I don't know. That sounds maybe pretentious mm-hmm. that I like wanted to model <laughs> yeah. it, but I was in, tr- in, um, just sort of colliding different things as my brain was thinking of them. You know, I had a professor that said like essayistic thinking is not traveling through time. It's like traveling through your mind or traveling on the page. Mm-hmm. And I do think that like when I say the word wolf, I've done this at a reading, you know, where I'm like, okay, when I say the word wolf, like what comes to mind and different people in the audience say different things. And like, that's the point that we all have these different associations. And mm-hmm. some people are picturing the big bad wolf and some people are picturing the Disney wolf or the wolf they saw in the zoo. And yeah. I actually think it's like important to sort of recognize all those different associations together and to like for this story i needed to have that kind of associative approach Hmm. do you have any idea how many wolves in the united states like any ballpark or maybe Uh, i wish i had that number off the top of my head yeah that's a good question the ecology of fear is a you know scientific term obviously there are well i I want to get to in a second actually but yeah what you're saying about like the voters you know the same Mm -hmm. voters pick this it, it doesn't seem to be a lot much of a logical leap right you don't have awesome. to take the leap mm-hmm. it, it seems to make sense it's like well if if there if there's dominion and manifest destiny mm-hmm. and especially if there's this idea that like oh we're you know god is telling us what to do mm-hmm. then if we can say no wolves or kill all the wolves why can't we tell mm-hmm. say who lives here mm-hmm. right i mean it's just mm-hmm. it's just a, a never-ending process 
and a right. grasping for control and of like defining selfhood off of the exclusion of others right exactly. and who's in and who's out and that you know i think this book i was i wanted to break down the binaries between the wolf and the human but also between you know the town and the country mm. and all of these this the sort of chapters are structured around these ideas of like a, a binary that i'm slowly trying to to challenge that sort of binary black and white thinking right so i mean obviously there are there are very rational fears i mean there was um i mean scary the stories about the in 1996 in india mm -hmm. there was that huge spate of mm -hmm. 15 20 30 you know horror, mm -hmm. horrific killings by wolves and you know babies and kids i mean mm -hmm. it makes you feel of course mm -hmm. tell the story of candace who was the teacher of on the teacher who mm -hmm. went from pennsylvania to alaska you know, knew what she was in for knew she was in a really 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 mm -hmm. deserted area but also beautiful area working as a teacher i mean literally like flying to work some days mm -hmm. right like helicopter mm -hmm. And she unfortunately was a victim, you know, mm -hmm. on a day where she was running. And again, mm -hmm. very gendered um, criticism at times of mm -hmm. her, like, you know, why didn't she know what she was doing? And mm -hmm. she was she was living her life. There's I don't know how to pronounce mm -hmm. it, Yolande or Yolande, mm -hmm. right? In in England as well. So you know, so many there are so many rational fears, whether it's around mm -hmm. wolves or just in the world in general. You write about so much. I mean. How do you not with climate change and there's mm -hmm. wildfires and, mm -hmm. you know, just the way that the world is changing so quickly. It's not like climate change is coming in 20 years. It's here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wonder about can the connection between the ecology of fear, which the, you wrote about how it could be seen as a positive or it could be helpful in the long run, mm -hmm. but just about how that connects to like rational and irrational fears. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I think I, I set out to write, part of writing the book, you know, I think so many of us as writers, there's like the question we want to explore on the page because we think it's smart. And there's like the thing that is just the imperative that's keeping us up at night that we're maybe subconsciously trying to answer. And I think what I was trying to answer with this was like, why am I afraid all the time? And how should I, or not, you know, how should I figure out what is a normal amount of fear? What is rational? What is irrational in my body? It's going to feel the same way in a certain way. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I realized <laughs> that you can't, we can't perfectly determine that. Like we can't calibrate, we can't look around us and determine, okay, what's the right amount of fear I should have for this thing. Sometimes we're just like lying in our bed at night and I hear what I think is a gunshot. And sometimes I do hear gunshots, but like, am I going to crawl onto the floor? No, I'm probably just going to lie in my bed and like hope there's not one that comes through the mm -hmm. window because sometimes that happens in my neighborhood, but it's fine. Um, or I don't know. I don't mean to sound uh callous about that example, but that's just like this sort of thing that would happen to me now. And I think like, I don't know how afraid I should be, but probably mm -hmm. I'm going to calibrate that. And I, you know, this idea of the ecology of fear is that um, different, we move through the landscape and react, respond differently, dependent on threat, and that that in turn shapes the world we're moving through. Mm -hmm. And I've just started thinking like, we have to just learn to walk beside that fear and discomfort um, in so many ways and let that, you know, not close certain doors, but open certain doors. Um, I guess I'm thinking about something I read about young wolves, which is that they're born very afraid. And when they hear a noise, they want to go investigate it. And that is an example where fear isn't actually a closing of the world. It's like an opening of the world, like in going mm -hmm. to explore the wolf is like maybe discovering something. And I think that that was sort of true for, for me too. Um, and with like climate change, I feel afraid when I sometimes think about going backpacking during wildfire season. But at the same time, if I tap into what that feeling is, it's like, I feel really in love with this landscape and I you know, feel sad about climate change, but actually there's so much here that I want to like marvel in. And there's mm -hmm. so many reasons to fight for climate change and fight against it and be use activism. And I think the fear can be like a gateway to activism or to curiosity or to wonder. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's walking beside the fear is what I think I came away from the book learning to do. Like, how do I sit mm -hmm. with it? and not how do I vanquish it? It's like, I can't vanquish yeah. it. So what does it mean to sort of like welcome it into my life and mm -hmm. use it as a way to look outward and not be defined by its presence, but also not mm -hmm. deny it. You know, I think it's yeah. important to, especially with climate change, acknowledge the discomfort and the fear and then say like, where do we go from here? Cause this can't be the end. 
talked about just, you know, sense of wonder. I mean, what a cool trip you had. You got to go to England, uh, like a, like a trust or a conservatory. I don't know what you call the place. Yeah. Sort of like a center for, uh, wolves that had been rescued. Right. And it's not like a very eccentric, very British, um, you know, history with like the owners, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not a hundred percent altruistic, but in the end, a good thing, but you know, there's mm-hmm. also definitely ideas, you know, same with the zoo. It's like, well, this is not their true world. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sounds like sounds like the mission of the of that place, right? Was like people will come, they'll see them, they'll be moved by the beauty. Hopefully, make changes in the outside. I wonder on a very visceral level, what was it like to just see these beautiful wolves? Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of amazing because even though I know this is just a wolf behind a fence and it's really hot and we're in a heat wave. I mean, talk mm. about like the sort of climate change goggles that I had on of like looking at this Arctic wolf in a paddock, like a field in England when it's 95 degrees, um, was so sort of like brain breaking to try like be making eye contact with this wolf through this fence. And, you know, one of the things I was told was the wolves do not fear you, the person, and you do not fear the wolves. Like they're, they're so used to humans that I would sort of think, am I seeing, I'm seeing the wolf seeing me, you know, I'm not just seeing the wolf as a wild wolf. I'm seeing the Mm. wolf who's been used to humans. And so it did make me think about the ways, like I I was observing the wolf through the fence, but the wolf was observing me. The wolf knew Mm -hmm. who I was, you know, they would start to the the second week I was there, they're aware of me in a different way than they are a guest that comes in to look at them. Um, Mm. And so it was, it was extraordinary to sort of start to notice their personalities. Wolves have extreme personalities. They have different roles in each of the packs, you know, and, Um, the ways that they interact with each other. Also, you hear about this with like, if one wolf dies in a pack, um, that might be the wolf that sort of teaches other wolves how to keep that territory. And they might actually lose that territory because Mm. the pack can disintegrate after, you know, a certain one dies. It's so each wolf is kind of its own part of the ecosystem. Um, Mm. And I could really see that watching them and sort of observing the ways they interacted it was it was moving to me and I, I i wrote this book from the beginning thinking i like wasn't a clear wolf person or animal person i mm. um i was interested in them and i was curious but i was always i was never immediately obsessed and i think um you know actually looking at anything for long enough it becomes fascinating i do think is true yeah so you're you're a full-fledged wolf fanatic now <laughs> what you say? um i you yeah. know i've I've got all the swag. I'm, I'm on my way. I definitely, I mean, I think I'm as interested in wolves as I am. The wolf made me interested in actually all creatures more. Um, and in thinking about myself as an animal more and thinking about sort of the ways that I've Mm. been taught to be a human and like, it just thinking into what it meant to like be an animal in the world, I would say Mm -hmm. was the larger practice that now I take, whether I'm watching the rabbits in my yard or. Yeah. Well, such a such a kaleidoscopic view that you do with the book. There's also we talked about the indigenous peoples. There's a couple of people that you talked to who were, I guess, park rangers for lack of a better word, and indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. You know, I know Deb Holland is the Interior Secretary. You know, with the the painful history of her people, she's an Interior Secretary. There's you know, so many questions about land rights. And you also, like you said, with having family members who are taxidermists as well as you know conservationists, mm-hmm. you do talk to and they're one of the most memorable parts for me was talking to some of the ranchers or farmers who mm-hmm. do truly love their animals, but also know that they need to be slaughtered. Mm-hmm. I always feel a sense of guilt if that's the word about that. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear about it, but I, I'm not a vegetarian. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder maybe kind of what you learned about, like, I don't know about food systems and just like mm-hmm. maybe really specific to like, I felt like I got to know Eastern Oregon a lot more through the mm-hmm. book and, you know, that very, very Northern California, but especially Eastern Oregon. Mm-hmm. I think the, the negatives I had, I've heard of like, you know, like the, like Bundy, I'm in mm-hmm. Bundy and mm-hmm. all them, but I, I, sorry, a long way in a way of just getting out, like just the food process and the way that people make their living. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, I'm speaking only for myself, but I'm like, Hey, I'm going to look the other way, but hope that that food's there when I want it, you know, when I need it, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's interesting because I stopped eating beef through somewhere through the reporting of this book, mm. um, not purely because of it, but um, yeah, I mean, I think um, I had so much respect for what some of these ranchers were doing, and I was trying to talk to ranchers um, who were open. You know, I met a lot of ranchers who are like, wolves are fascinating, and actually, this one's pretty interesting. And hey, look at, I'm going to send you. 
a photo from the wildlife game camera, or mm-hmm. I'm going to text you afterwards and say, Erica, this wolf just came by our property. We got a caller notification. And mm-hmm. they were curious and interested in that. And that was interesting to me because they felt that sense of curiosity and also the sense of, but I want to protect this thing that I care for and I took care of. Um, and that tension I just felt was so flattened out of so many of these narratives where the ranchers were just totally anti-wolf, you know, mm. quote, unquote. and yet in reality, you know, livestock producers would, some, they would, some, many of them would say they're also environmental, they're stewards of the land, mm. right? Um, and some people on cities would disagree with that, but I walked around, you know, certain landscapes that are, if, if a landscape um, is taken care of by cows, deer also like to go there, you know, and if there's deer there, because there's all these good foraging materials, there's going to be wolves there. And so some, you know, this particular ranchers who are really focused on biodiversity, and there's a number of like scientists who are researching the ways that they Mm. run cattle in very responsible ways Mm. to help manage the grasslands. They also have a lot of predators there. And they're sort of like, we understand that that's part of actually raising a good hamburger is raising mm. a good ecosystem around yeah. it. And that was really interesting to me. Um, and I think also just hearing about all the things that make creating that hamburger really challenging, that people in the cities, it's easy to say, well, oh. sorry, just deal with that one ranch attack. But when I'm sitting there talking to a rancher saying, I'm up every night because the dogs are barking and I'm wor- and the, our dogs are dying and I'm mm. scared and my kids are scared. Like I could honor that fear and I could say, I know what you're feeling. And that felt sure. important to live with that. And I think city folks who are putting, maybe putting wolves on the ballot say, we need to be able to reckon with um, who's feeling those mm. externalities. Cause that exists. Wolves are going to be entangled with livestock and how do we yeah. best support the producers? I think we yeah. have to work together. Ideas of again land and who owns it or and nobody owns the land or you know communal. I was I guess kind of opposite from my family. But you're talking about how like you were kind of surprised to find out your family was only maybe one or two generations from mm-hmm. like Brooklyn or New York mm-hmm. or Connecticut. You know, very mm-hmm. like city East Coast. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like it's been you know generations. You know, I feel I feel like I guess not even urban, but I feel like just suburban through and through. Mm-hmm. You know, like my great grandpa was a, who came over from Italy was a butcher. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then my grandma would talk about how like, oh my God, the smell and you know, all that. And, mm-hmm. but it just seems so far away from me, from my generation, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of like connecting with the land is not just going for the hike, but also like going and looking at these ranchers. And I just, mm-hmm. I find myself or at ranch land rather, you know, like, right. Wolf, ranch land is wolf habitat too. Um, wolves do not just live in this like beautiful, pristine ecosystems. They also mm. are living in like, you know, the gravel roads, the hunting roads, the mm-hmm. abandoned forest service, this or that, you know? Um, and so understanding this sort of intimacy that wildlife has with these spaces that are not quite cities, but not quite what we think of as like wilderness, quote unquote, mm-hmm. I just felt like I wanted um that's important. And I wanted city readers to start to think more about the ways that say a subdivision could be hard for a wolf in the same way that a ranch. Mm -hmm. We think, oh, a ranch is really bad for a wolf, but actually so is a subdivision, which sometimes replaces the ranch when that ranch goes out of business. So what does it mean to keep that ranch there? Hmm. I'd actually be better for the wolf. That's what some of these biologists were telling me. And that was really interesting. I never thought about that in those Mm -hmm with fear being such a big topic of the book, you know, the book ends without giving away the book ends on a very soft note. And I mean, as the highest compliment, it's a, a beautiful ending craft wise. Right. But, but about fear. And like you talked about, like it, it runs throughout the book so much. Mm-hmm. Your, your trip to, we went to Sicily. Mm-hmm. I, I would love to know where, you, where in Sicily you went. Uh, near a tiny town called Vallelunga, which was like an hour and a half from Palermo. <laughs> To the you said inland, so like to the inland. East, it was between sort of like okay. Cefalu was to the oh, east. Cefalu. the best. Yeah, was that where your Italian family I, was from? My Italian family is from Calabria mostly, you know. Up on, okay, but, but just yeah. traveling to I don't know if you like the the Getty quote was something about to have seen Italy without seeing Sicily is never to have seen Italy at all. Mm, and I, I, yeah. I talk to anyone I can about how beautiful, um, you know, did you get to go to Taormina? Yeah, it's incredible. Oh, man, the honeymoon yeah. capital of Europe. And I know. Yeah, Fala was beautiful, right? The beach yep. and all that. 
But I um so you know you had I mean to put it light to put it yeah put it lightly you had a, a major <laughs> health scare there but you wrote about how you know kind of like stereotypically like in Sicily and Italy it's just you were working with food and you ate beautifully and you ate so much good <laughs> food you wrote quote unquote you wrote quote my brain was too filled in Sicily like not in a bad <laughs> way <laughs> my brain was too filled in Sicily to have fear do you was that like was that like the place that was like, boom, I found that, I found that sweet spot of like, kept myself busy in a healthy way, mm-hmm. you know, kind of think, I, you know, kind of thinking day to day, minute to minute, mm-hmm. hour to hour. Is that some of the solution to how we get past our fears? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I do think that living in taking care of other people is often of when I'm doing that, I'm less afraid for myself, right? And I've felt that whether I'm guiding mm-hmm. teenage girls backpacking through the backcountry, and I'm thinking about bears, but I'm also thinking about them. And I find, you know, the last chapter, I'm thinking about mothers, but I define mother loosely, and I'm thinking about it, I'm someone who doesn't have children. But um, I think about it as like caretaking and sort of stewardship and the ways mm-hmm. we're looking out for each other. And it became interesting to me to think about like, what do I want to help protect? Not just being afraid for myself, but um, this larger sense of like stewarding each other and the land and other species. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that like, if we're looking outward with that fear, it's less neuro the the neuroses of like um how do i keep myself safe was sort of at the driver's seat of my late teenage brain after some Mm -hmm. of these scary things but that's such a um, myopic perspective you know and i think Mm -hmm. in sicily i was just busy you know helping with the farm helping with the cooking school where i was living Mm -hmm. and there was you know that kind of buddhist sense of or gota has this beautiful quote that's do not hurry do not rest which I have pinned above my writing board. Mm. And I don't know that I'm good at doing either, but I do think that's sort of, that's what I aspire to now of just like keep moving forward. And I think about something like climate change, right? Like I wanna not be panicking and I also wanna not be in denial. So what does it mean to walk beside and in between those two feelings? Mm. Mm. Well, I've had a few folks like this on the podcast where it's like, come on, seeing your birthday and seeing how young you are, it's like, man, (laughs) <laughs> you've already you've already created this masterpiece at such a you know what I what I say at such a young age. So congrats. I mean again, there's something for everybody in the book. It's yeah, you learn about history, you learn about myth, you learn about both in that the way that the world is so amazing to me that there could be the same basic storyline of Little Red mm-hmm. Riding Hood in France and Western Europe mm-hmm. and also in Japan and East Asia. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. even before seemingly a lot of the you know the the, the connections between countries and, and exploration and such. Just, you know, some really human themes, so much about specific to the U.S. and indigenous peoples and just the wolf. And like I said, like amazing how many sayings, how many expressions, how much history you think about with the wolf and just something for everybody. So congrats on that. Thanks and so much. You, you would be so justified to just say, well, I'm done. Did my, my masterpiece. I wonder if you might have any future projects you might want to share. Well, I am working now thinking about, again, the natural world and um, also the self. And I'm thinking not about fear, but about love. Um, And so I guess similarly, like, what does it mean to carry this emotion forward into an uncertain world? Hmm. It's maybe, you know, part of, I think there's always a degree that I'm writing to think about the most urgent sort of question. And after Hmm. breaking through this sort of, paralyzing fear that I had at times in my early 20s. You know, there's the question of, okay, we're still here. And what do we have? We have these connections with each other. And yet the world still kind of feels uncertain and scary. But what does it mean to like, how do we lean on each other? And so I'm, um, I guess that's all I'll say now. But I'm, I want to find myself like wanting to read love stories and having hard times reading sad stories. And so I'm trying to think about that in between. Awesome. Again, congrats on Wolfish. Congrats on just an incredible work that uh, I'm sure is still in its infancy. I'm sure it's still going to be taught in in five years and 10 years in a, in a science class, in a high school class, in a college, graduate school. I'm, I'm sure it's still got a, I've made the pun before, the shelf life for sure. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, and thank you for your work as a teacher too. I mean, this, I think I have the utmost respect for teachers and that you know, the teachers that I had have shaped so much the the inquiry that I brought to this book. So, you know, Definitely. grateful for the ways you're inspiring people on and Thank off. Thank you the so pod. much. I'm, 
Thank you so much. I'm going to end with one of your teachers. You can throw the name out there. This was, if you would like, this was uh, from the book. One of your teachers said, I'm quoting from the book, there are only two real plots, the story of the stranger who comes to town and the story of the one who leaves. I think that was a Charles Baxter quote, who's one of the greatest craft teachers of all time. So those of you who've not been you know, lucky enough to, mm-hmm. to hear from Charles, uh, Charlie directly, I, I recommend all of his craft books. Definitely. And this, and Atwood also wrote, all stories are about wolves. All we're worth repeating, that is. All worth repeating, that is. And Wolfish is definitely one. Congrats again. So awesome to talk to you. If you're listening, go get Wolfish now. Any particular, uh, you know, maybe Portland area bookstores or that you would like to shout out? Good place to buy your books. Uh, Broadway Books is my closest nearby bookstore. They've got signed copies and okay. um, big fan of them. Also Powell's, uh, of yeah. course, I support and the workers are going on strike coming up soon. So if you hear this, um, it's really, you know, it's an icon of Portland and I'm really standing mm-hmm. in solidarity with the workers right now. Appreciate that so much. And thanks again. Thank you. you. Take care. pleasure it has been to speak with Erica Berry for episode 201. I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow her career and her important work. And thank you for listening to this episode with Erica Berry. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. My last name is spelled R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often-ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 202 with Dennis J. Sweeney, a cross-genre writer and the author of You're the Woods 2 and In the Antarctic Circle, as well as four chapbooks of poetry and prose. Dennis has been a finalist for the National Poetry Series and the Big Other Book Award. This episode will air on September 5th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Erica Berry, whose work, like Wolfish, Wolf, Self, and the Stories We Tell About Fear, gives you chills at will. (laughs) 